0: TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to The Abnormal Psychologist, the show that shares everyday insights into getting the best out of your mind, body, and lifestyle. Now please welcome your host, the Abnormal Psychologist herself, Carrie Thompson-Casey.
1: Hello there, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Abnormal Psychologist with me, your host, Carrie Thompson-Casey the show where we are giving you the how to to get the best out of you and today we are talking to Sam Bailey now Sam Bailey has an amazing story he's a farmer and an author and he also has a an amazing story to tell about surviving adversity and he is also a motivational speaker where he shares that story but today we are very lucky because he's going to share that story with us and before I turn it over, microphone over to Sam, I just want to paint the picture of where I am. So at the moment, I don't really feel like I'm in the middle of nowhere, but certainly driving out here, Sam warned me that you might drive for a while through a throughput Some paddocks and you'll feel like you are driving nowhere. And I think I had that moment about twice driving out here where I was like, Oh, am I in the right place? This is another paddock and another gate. But eventually I'm out here. It is beautiful property. I can hear the birds outside, and it's just a gorgeous day, even though we were secretly hoping that it would rain and I wouldn't be able to get here out here on the black soil roads. But unfortunately it didn't rain. But lucky for you, we do have Sam Bailey with us. So Sam, tell us your story.
2: Carrie, thank you so much for having me. This is a great thrill. I have got a story. It's a pretty simple one. I was born and raised on a property next door here in a wheat and sheep place. And I think right from day one, it was in my blood, it was under my fingernails and, and it was all I wanted. All I wanted to be was a farmer. And people often ask me, what is it? What is it that grabs you? And I mean, I don't really, is it the wonderful lifestyle that you have living on a farm? Is it the fascination of growing crops? Is it the the joy and, and wonder of nurturing animals and then of course as time rolls along and you start to grow up it's all the first the first track i drove the first wild pig that i shot the first billy cart my brother and i built that was bloody hard work pushing it but we soon worked out that a length of rope in their own bike solved that problem yeah and i had it all planned simply from from day one and and i probably i also learned probably one of the uh, the most valuable lessons you can ever learn in life i learned a thing called, well, it's called resilience these days. Back then, it was that never give up or never give in. And I grew up with it. I saw Mum and Dad cope with fires and floods, and you know, too much rain at the wrong time and not enough rain at the right time. And but they never gave up. You know, they just clean up the mess. They'd feed during a drought, and that was sort of instilled in me from a very early age. You know, we all had stock. And they give you, you know, stock are wonderful and they give you a lot of joy, but they'd break legs and they get bogged in dams and they'd dive mysteriously. And we all had pets as kids and they give you hours and hours of enjoyment, but they get bitten mice snakes and they get run over and they have to be put down. So you learn, you learn to grieve, but you learn to get on with it. And little did I know that that was to help me enormously a few years down the track. So I had my life all planned. I'd simply get through my education a few years out in the big wide world and that was back home, take the range from dad, marry, family. You know, and the whole process begins again. So I um, so I kicked, started my education at Little Cropper Creek Primary School, and I uh, I remember getting home and Mum saying to me, well, how's your first day at school, Sambo? Yeah, it wasn't too bad, Mum, but I don't think I'll worry about going back tomorrow. So I had six years there, and then I was sent away to boarding school. I went to Taz in Armidale, where the grand finale there for me was probably doing my Year 12 and HSC way back in 1985, where I... Uh, I graduated in rugby, cricket and athletics and going to high distinction and being able to find my way over to girls' boarding school blindfolded. <laughs> yeah. So as you can probably imagine there was no great joy or celebration when my HSC mark arrived home, but that wasn't a worry. The faster I could get away from the classroom, the better. I spent a year on a property in Western Queensland, my first year out of school, where, you know, I worked hard, I played hard, I made some lifelong friendships. And I feel hopelessly lumbered with the outback. So the following year I moved myself even further north. I landed myself a job on a big cattle station up in the Northern Territory. So I remember I came home for Christmas at the end of what was that 1986. And early the following year climbed back in a old Holden Ute And set sail for the Northern Territory for what I thought was going to be another wonderful adventure. I'd been up there, per, it was about four months and we arrived this particular weekend. And there wasn't a lot going on. So four of my mates and I thought we'd bust the boredom of a Sunday afternoon by heading back into a little place called Camelwheel for a beer. So I remember we uh, we assembled mid-afternoon, full of fun and excitement of the afternoon it was about to unfold. Shut the doors and away we went. And um, but unfortunately, we never made it. We got twenty minutes down the road. We were flying. We had a blowout. The front passenger side tyre of the car. The car rolled several times. I um. I was a passenger in the back seat, I didn't have a seatbelt on. was thrown out the back window and came to lying on the side of the road. I knew straight away that this time there was something pretty seriously wrong as I was completely paralysed and had no sensation at all in my lower body. So much so that I remember my first words to a couple who had obviously pulled up and were kneeling down beside me I said to them, "Geez, I hope I don't spend the rest of my life in a wheelchair. So I guess you could say that I was preparing myself quite early on for what was about to become reality. I was, um, I was then flown from the crash site by the Royal Flying Doctor to Mount Isa where I spent the night in the Mount Isa Hospital. I spent most of the night in the x-ray theatre. Obviously the doctors had to photograph me from head to toe to try and come to some diagnosis. And I think from memory the diagnosis was pretty simple. I had three or four little cuts on my left arm, a dislocated right hip and a broken neck. I'd um, severed my spinal cord at the base of my neck, leaving me a quadriplegic, which basically means now I've got limited use of my arms and hands. I'm paralyzed from the chest down. I've got no feeling from the chest down. I've lost bowel and bladder control. I have a total inability to be able to regulate my body temperature. And I've now only got about 35% of my lung capacity left. So I was placed in traction, and first thing in the flying morning, loaded back on the Royal Flying Doctor, where I was then flown to Brisbane, we arrived at the um, spinal unit at the Princess Alexandria Hospital in Brisbane. It was a shattering blow at that age, at 19, to go from being a, a six-foot-tall, bulletproof young bloke with a world at your feet. And I suppose at 19 you are bigger, stronger, faster than Superman. And I think to be ejected out of that world and to land in one of complete dependency, I mean, I was literally pushed into that spinal unit, a body on a bed, completely helpless. But I guess I found out, and and I now know, tragedy, bad luck, mishap, accident, diagnosis, call it what you might, is unfortunately a part of life. And at some stage, we are all going to get we are all going to get dealt that bad card. And I suppose for me, I had to I had to come to some acceptance of what had happened and put it behind me and focus on on um.
1: Just getting
2: Sam a drink of water there, just hang on a sec. Hard word. I can't, I don't know how all these women can talk and talk without, without drinking something, but I'm not, um, not used to that. So I had to come to some acceptance and it was a matter of saying, well, bad luck, mate. Wrong place at the wrong time. You can't rewind the clock now. Be grateful you're still here and after all, a lot of people don't get that choice. Um, you know, I, at the end of the day, I thought I was pretty lucky. You know, and, and the doctors did say to me, "Well, you, you stand a chance of leading a reasonably independent life." So when I weighed it all up, there are a lot more positives, and negatives, and I suppose when I broke it down into its rawest possible form, life was saying to me, "Well, you got two options, Sam: swim or sink." And I couldn't see any of the life at the bottom of the pool, so I chose the other option. I um, I think for me that initially the accident was just loss of mobility. You know, it just means you can't walk and you can't run, Sam. But I was horribly, horribly wrong. That is only five percent of my injury; the other ninety-five percent of it's hidden. I remember one of the first things I had to learn to do in the spinal unit, once out of traction, was to sit up in bed. You know, obviously, when you're paralysed from your chest down, from from there down becomes seventy-five kilos of dead, uncooperative weight. It took me days and days to learn how to sit up in bed. Then when you're sitting up, you gotta try and maintain your balance. While you're transferring to a bath chair, you know, for 16, 17 years, I'd walk to the bathroom. Now so I'm having to push myself in this chair with wheels on it. There's obviously the showering, the toileting. Then I was back to my bed, transfer out of my out of my wheelchair, out of my bath chair, onto my bed. Then you gotta to learn to dress this dead, lifeless body. You know, I can't tell you what it's like to try and pull a pair of jeans onto a body that you have no control over, no sensation. Never did I think. Trying To get a boot onto a foot would be so bloody difficult. But once stressed and in your, in your chair, it's then all the simplistic things you take so much for granted. You know, I wheeled over to the basin to try and comb my hair. And I couldn't hold a comb. Went down to the dining room and I couldn't hold a knife or a fork. Came back up to the room to try and clean my teeth and I couldn't get toothpaste on my toothbrush. I spent five months in the unit where you literally do start all over again and then my dream came true, all right? The spiling unit doors open and I arrived home to the farm at Cropper Creek but could never ever imagine that I arrived home in a wheelchair. And getting home was just an absolute nightmare. Um, I couldn't do anything. I had no way of getting around the farm. I had no car. Um, so I was completely housebound. I... Um, I was now starting to learn the full extent of my injury. I had—I remember spending days and days in bed, jammed full of antibiotics, trying to get rid of bladder infections. I had bowel accidents, which were terribly embarrassing. I burnt myself really badly in the shower one night, which took months and months to heal. I will never forget wheeling my old bedroom for the first time, and there in front of me was the life that I'd had. You know, my saddle hanging up, my surfboard in one corner, my cricket bat in the other corner. I will never forget putting my footy boots on my lap for the first time and, and that's when it really hits you. Um, you, you know, so I'd realised that the, you know, my life from, from now on was never going to be the way it was. This body now was, well, 80% of it was never going to do what I once did. And then I had a massive, massive challenge ahead of me. If I was going to try and make some sort of life myself on the land... But I was never going to give up and I was never going to give in and there was no way I was going to a bloody spinal cord injury, getting the road of what I'd always wanted. So with a Sydney Harbour full of determination and, a, and another one full of, beside it full of a never give up or give in attitude, I rolled my sleeves up and set about to rebuild a, a badly broken life. You know, I got quicker and quicker getting dressed and getting my boots on and getting toothpaste onto my toothbrush and... I then taught myself to get on and ride a four-wheel motorbike, which became my legs around the farm. I got my first car with hand controls, which got me back on the road. I converted all the farm machinery and devised a little hoist to get myself up into the cabins of all the bits of, of gear that we had on the farm. I then learnt, to, I then climbed my very own Mount Kosciuszko, and I learned to fly an ultralight aircraft, which became a very powerful symbol for me because it was something I could do that lots and other, lots of other people couldn't. I travelled overseas, I tried my hand at snow skiing, one year down Trebo, which was a ton of fun. I guess I had got my life back to some normality, you know, and taken probably five or six years, and, and unfortunately, lost years for me. You know, your early 20s are some of the best years of your life, and while all my mates were gallivanting around the world, around Australia, building their own life, I was back home trying to learn how to drive a car and get into a tractor. But I had to climb to all these hurdles and there was just one left in front of me to climb and that was finding a girl to share this life that I'd rebuilt. I'd had you know, two or three relationships through the years that never went anywhere. The girls would fall madly in love with Sam but the following weekend when they found out a bit more about his mate quadriplegia, they ran and I was accepting of that. Obviously it made me realise that not every girl in the world is going to throw themselves in front of someone in a chair. I was now in my 30s pretty well and maybe... Maybe this life was going to be a solo one, but one of the great things about life is you never know what's, what's around the corner. One afternoon, the phone rang, and and that phone call changed my whole life. It was a rural reporter called Jenny Black, who was um who was working for ABC Radio in Tamworth. To cut a long, long, long story short, she came up and did an interview with me. We uh, we eventually fell madly, madly in love with each other, and I got to say, the best things that ever happened to me. Meaning Jenny. I, um, like most girls, she can normally talk under wet cement with a mouthful of marbles. But the, the morning that I proposed to her live on her radio program, I had a stump just for a moment or two. What a special morning that was. We then got married, and then I I guess my dream really did come true. I arrived home to the farm here at Copper Creek as a farmer with my little mate tucked under my arm. And yeah, you know, those first six months of getting home was just the most fantastic time for us both. We were doing the the cattle worked together, Jen would give me a hand with the cropping when I needed it. We moved into a big old house that hadn't been lived in for 10 years, so i trying to restore a little bit of order there. Could life get any better? Well, it, it did. We um, we were on the program Australian Story way back in 2000. And we just got, like everyone on the program, we got an incredible response to our story. You know, we just got letters and we got phone calls and it was back before emails. And I think what was a bit of a wake-up—well, not so much a wake-up call, but probably a a realization—was that this simple story could help people, because probably eighty percent of the people who had responded to our story had, at some stage, suffered some sort of life-changing hardship, and our story was just giving them hope. So I thought, well, maybe I've got to get out and tell this story because it can help, you know, and it can give people hope so what Australian Story did for us was kickstart some public speaking and as you all know there's only one thing worse than dying and that's public speaking initially it was just locally but over the last eight or nine years now we've been crisscrossing Australia and just sharing this story with people from all walks of life you know one minute you can be in the Hilton Hotel in Melbourne talking to the top end of town the next minute you're out in the middle of nowhere talking to a handful of people and um it's an extraordinary life that I now lead. You know, you get a phone call or an email, and you don't know which way you're heading and who you're going to be in front of. So, um, look, that's about, yeah, that's where we're, about, we're up to. it. That's, so, it's, look, it's been a, it's, it's a simple story, but it's, it's a great one, and I could never, ever imagine if someone tried to tell me, you know, 27 years ago, look, Sam, you're going to be, you're going to have a catastrophic accident, you're going to be confined to a wheelchair for the rest of your life, but you will go on, you'll write a book, you'll marry a gorgeous girl, and you'll be um traveling around the country telling your story, or' just Yeah, pull the other one so that's where we are at the moment
1: that's an amazing story sam and yes you and and Jenny collaborated and and wrote a book and i and I've read the book, and it is an amazing read about your story. just to go back to some parts of your story, if we could, Sam, I remember you talking a bit about in the book and you mentioned it briefly before about passing out when learning to sit up again and that each time you would try to sit up you would pass out but it was actually a process that you had to go through for your blood vessels I think it was to develop more tone so that you could just tell us about getting through that what were you you saying to yourself to get through that process of just sitting up just the task of sitting up and passing out
2: well first of all you realize the enormity of the accident you know and and um it was be- why well, I'd pass it because they have they've changed they don't do it anymore but Back when I had an accident, they put you in traction, and you're in bed for about two months. So you're you're lying prone for two months, so your middle ear becomes becomes stable with you lying flat. And then of course, once you sit up, you know you lose loss of blood and you and and you faint. And but I found you know the first time was just awful. The second time was a little bit better. And I just found that you know the more you did it, the better you got. And I think also I was in. I was beside a guy called Gary, who was in the bed beside me, and he had no movement from his neck down and I um, I'd often used to look across to him when he was looking at me and, and thinking, Well, gee, you know, things could be a lot worse and and I felt as though I sort of had to you know, I had to have a, I had to try and I had to persevere because of him, you know, because and I think every time I felt like giving up I'd look at Gary and think, Well, he can't sit up. You know, he never will be able to sit up and he's going to be dependent for the rest of his life, so so I'd try again.
1: That's incredible courage. And in the book, in speaking of that courage, there's a, a part of it where your friend Richard Browning makes an observation that he would find it difficult to leave you behind in the hospital each time he would visit, that it would be a great time to come and chat to you, but he didn't like leaving you alone there. And you responded to him in the book by saying, In the end, I had to find the strength to go on deep within myself. Nobody else could do it for me. Could you just respond to that, that no one else could do that for you?
2: Well, it just basically just comes down to you, you know, and you're the one that's got to grab the baton and run, you know, and and no one else can do that for you. And look, Richard was, God, he was a power of strength to me when I was in the spying unit. You know, he used to come and see me all the time and he enveloped all his uni mates and bring them in all the time as well, but... Yeah, he was right. You know, they couldn't stay. 20, they couldn't be there twenty four seven, so they had to leave. And, but they cheered you up, you know, and and now I suppose I f- I felt a responsibility to give it a crack because of, because of you know because of them in a way, and I always have felt that responsibility that I just had to give this a crack. For the raw fine doctor, for the guys in the spinal unit that's that dedicate their whole lives to helping people with spinal injury, for Richard Browning, for my parents that were laying a platform, for all my mates that were you know showing great concern and cheering me on at every milestone. So I think within myself I felt as I as I just said you know I had to I had to have a crack at this for, for for them.
1: And also in the book you talk about you say at my low points I would just get up. In the morning and try something new and at another point you say I dug down deep and I found I could cope when I was alone I didn't dwell on my situation so it sounds like the message you were trying to tell yourself each time was that this is really hard but I can cope rather than dwell on my situation or what's happening today or the the challenge medically that's happening today or in the hospital or even even at home now it sounds like the mantra was sort of, "I'll get up, I'll give something try, and something new a try in the morning." Would that be right?
2: Yeah, definitely, that's right. And I, yeah, look, there were some hard days when I first came home. Obviously, you know, because you are, you are, I think, like anyone that's probably had a stint in the hospital. You know, there's no greater day when the doctor gives you the green light to return home, and you and you, you return home, and your life returns to normality. And I, I think, in a sense, I thought once I got home my life would return to some normality as well. But you know, I was horribly wrong, you know, because you know, it's all these tiny little things that you don't think about. But I what helped me enormously also is you know, I did dig, dig deep for and I, I found that I had inner strength that I probably wouldn't have known I had if I hadn't had the accident. But what also helped me a lot is, is was laughter and humour. I think if uh, you can crack a joke at a problem and have a laugh, that helped me enormously. And the other thing I learned to do was, and I designed it myself, and it's a bit of an analogy from the bush, is, is what I call jumping the fence. And what I mean by that is when, when it all goes pear-shaped in your own paddock, or say so you think, jump over the fence in someone else's paddock, and all I had to do for 20 or 30 seconds was just give a thought to what's happening around the world at that time. Maybe I didn't have to leave the shores of this country you know I could think back to the spining and those people that had no movement from the neck down the spinal ear was beside the head injuries ward in, in in the PA hospital in Brisbane you know I saw some horrific things in there so you know and I could think about the families of lost loved ones in tragic accidents and I could think about the people all battling cancer and so what you very quickly do is jump back over the fence back into your paddock and all of a sudden that gave me a bit of a lift and I thought well my situation's not all that bad after all, you know, and so it helped me enormously and and helped me get from one day to the next.
1: That's such a great philosophy, Sam. And again, just drawing on the book another time, you wrote, I remember that you need to have a few bad days to properly appreciate the good ones. Tomorrow's another day and it will be better.
2: Yeah, that's right. Look, every day can't be a great one because otherwise you wouldn't appreciate it. And the fact of life is that every day won't be a good one you are going to have days where it will all go pear shaped, but and then you'll have really good days that'll make up for it so yeah
1: now with your book you wrote a great book as i said before it's an awesome read i laughed out loud i did shed a tear from time to time but i certainly laughed out loud a few times through the book but another part of your story is that you had an opportunity to meet with christopher reeve and it was one of those chuckle moments where, in the book you write, what am I going to say? He's Superman, and I'm just a farmer from Cropper Creek. What was it like to meet Christopher Reeve?
2: Oh, look, it was just it was just incredible, and that's something I love about my life that I get all these opportunities now. But look, it was a it was a, it was a chance meeting. We uh, I spoke at a spinal cord conference in Sydney, and to cut a long story short, a good friend of mine used to be there. The, his PA when she was working for them and anyway as you can imagine when Christopher Reeve came over he was just swamped by the media but she managed to sneak him out one afternoon down to a cafe in at the Rocks in Sydney and uh, she told me that she was going to organise it and come down to a meeting well as she just said I, you know wheeling down I thought well, what in the hell am I going to say to this bloke but do you know what he's just another person you know and I pulled up beside him and straight away he was just so easy to talk he was very interested in what i was doing you know i had some photos of the hoist and the ultralight and and i showed him that and he, he and he was he was very very genuine and so we had a great old chat and then the following day we were to meet again at government house for there was a there was a um i think it was a lunch or an afternoon tea there and i sometimes wonder whether these celebrities just you know that they, they meet so many people and whether it just goes in one ear and out the other So We got out there and I wheeled in and he was there. And he said, go, Sam, look, I've been thinking about your ultralight and that's just unbelievable. And it blew me away, really did. And it was, but he had an aura about him. He just had this, and he was a huge man. You don't realise how big he was. He was an electric chair, obviously, with very little movement. I had no movement from his neck down. But still he had this aura. He still was Superman. And yeah, it's one of the... One of the things I love about my life is is the chance of meeting these people, and he certainly is yeah one that's right up there. And and obviously I was I was just so saddened by his death, but he had such an impact on people, especially spinal cord injury, that I think it showed everyone that can happen to anyone. And he really did he you know he did a hell of a lot for people in with spinal cord injury in his short time. And yeah, yeah I was. Really sad when he died because he he'd said oh, if you ever come over come and see us and so I would have loved to have done that but look I'll just cherish that that 20 or 30 minutes I had with him in that cafe in Sydney.
1: Sam your story is again I, I keep saying it but it really is it really I think there's a lot to be learned about, about struggle and challenge and being patient with the struggle and keeping talking to yourself all the way through it and i encourage any of the listeners if they want to hear more about sam to to chase you up so how would someone go about finding you
2: oh look i've got a i've got a website and on there there's a there's a contact and you flick me an email and normally when you do that i get back to people straight away and but if yeah so that's probably the best way of finding me or look me up in the phone book
1: (laughs) Okay, now there's a few key questions I ask on my show, Sam. If you could just indulge me a little bit more of your time, so what have you learned about people through the last few years of your experiences?
2: What have I learned about people? Um, well, I've learned I've learned not to whinge, <laughs> and I've learned not to complain, and but I suppose I've learned I suppose I learned from mum and mum and dad. I learned that. You never give up, and you never give in, and that was probably one of the. I think that would be the most important thing I've ever learned from, and that was you know, taught from to me by them. the from watching them, yeah. and that was taught to me by them. I've learned, yeah, I've certainly learned patience. Um, you, you certainly have to be patient when you're in a wheelchair, so I've learnt that. I've learnt, um, I don't know, I've learnt, I've learnt how to love, and I didn't. Yeah, I never knew that I could love as much as I could, and, and I think that was the thing with Jenny that I had to accept that, you know, there were a lot of things I weren't gonna, you know, I can't do in a relationship because I just physically can't do it, but I can give as much love and as much affection to Jenny as any other black could, and I think at the end of the day, that's probably that's all all girls want. I just want to be loved. I want to be, you know, have a husband who's affectionate. So I've learnt that. What else? I'll think about it. You ask the next question.
1: <laughs> well probably just one more question. Is there anything that you consciously do to keep you focused or balanced? Is there any daily rituals or anything you definitely participate in that you think gives you this patience and gives you this energy to keep loving and doing all the things that you do on the farm?
2: Look, I just appreciate what I have, you know, and 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 I think sometimes we all lose track of that because we're you know, we've got all this marketing thrown at us. We've all got to have the iPad. We're all got to have a a widescreen TV, and we have all got to have this. And we've got have, when, when, at the end of the day, none of that's important to it. You know, what really matters is is what you already have. You know, and that can be your family, um your mates, and the community you live in. And I found that that's probably you know, again, that's where I it was really important. It was a really important lesson I learned lying in the bed and the in the spying unit that. The most important thing to me was my family, my mates, and and the community I lived in, because they they were all the people that dropped everything and ran had an the accident. You know, there was no there was no iPhone around the bed, there was no widescreen TV around the bed, there was no there was no ski boat, there was no V eight U. You know, around the, it was my family and my mates and and where I lived that all rallied. So I think that's yeah. I just, yeah, and every day is a great day, you know, and we are so very, very lucky to live in this great country, which does offer us all so much, and you can, you know, if you if you just want to get off your backside and, and have a go, this country, you can do anything, you know, it offers us so much. And, um, you know, if, you, if you're having a bad day, jump the fence and you'll soon jump back.
1: I am so grateful for your time today, Sam, and I'm sure the listeners will be really inspired by your story so that was a really great show and I'm so grateful to Sam and Jenny who's been floating about from the veranda I think she was going to check the horses well I hope you found Sam's story helpful today Don't forget to support the show by telling your friends or you can go to our Facebook page, Carrie Thompson Casey, that's Thompson without a P, and like us there and give us your feedback. You can also subscribe to the show in iTunes. Don't forget to give us a five-star rating if you like today's show. You can also support us by going to the website, CarrieThompsonCasey.com and subscribe. Thank you for joining me and see you on the next episode of The Abnormal Psychologist, where we share real people's stories and give you real ideas so that you can realize your potential
0: take care hi it's karen smith here are you ready to take your life to the most incredible level possible in 2015 are you ready to not just be the best version of you but to inspire your tribe like never before now if you've answered yes then get ready for the wellness breakthrough eight of your wellness couch favorites over three incredible days and two outrageously fun nights in february guiding you to break through to the next level like never ever before think of this cindy o'meara me karen smith kim morrison quirky cookings joe whitten marcus pierce and all three of the wellness guys working specifically with you personally now let's be clear this is not a sit and listen event this is a make shift happen retreat your life will never be the same again. Come with us. Join us at The Wellness Breakthrough. Now, for more information and to book your seats, go to allthews.thewellnesscouch.com. And I'm going to see you there. Whilst the Monscouch presents endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch Podcasts.